Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. And today will be part two of an earlier interview with the former master programmer for Atari, Howard Scott Warshaw. He is now a therapist uh, out in the Silicon Valley area, and we're going to talk really much more about that than the Atari situation itself. We're going to do a quick recap, though. Uh, Howard worked for Atari during their heyday from 77 through 82. He came up with two great programs, Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Then he was commissioned or brought in by the owner of Atari to come up with a video game version of E.T., which had been the most popular movie back in that period, that summer of 1982. And I still have to question why, because I did not like the movie myself. So Howard takes the job. He's given five weeks to do it, just five weeks. They have to get it in at the Christmas rush. Howard pulls through. The game sells. It sells very well, but then there's a backlash. And because of that backlash, uh, people started blaming Howard himself. Uh, the video game craze kind of came to a screeching halt. Uh, I was a kid about 15, 14, 15. All of a sudden, it all kind of ended. Flash forward a couple years ago, Howard, along with a documentary writer, Zach Penn, they come up with uh, Atari Game Over, a documentary on the E.T. game and the crash of the video game industry. They go to an Albuquerque landfill, and they dig up about 1,300 cartridges of the video game E.T. you got to see the documentary. It's really quite interesting. And then over the last couple of years, uh, the cartridges have sold from anywhere for a couple hundred bucks on eBay up to as high as 1500 And the money is going to charity, a little over $100,000. So... There's kind of the recap, and just to let Howard know before I bring him on, uh, I picked Mickey, Tony Basil. I cannot stand the song, but that was the number one song the week of December 5th through December 11th, 1982, and that's been kind of pinpointed the time frame when this all began. But after being long-winded, welcome, Howard. <laughs> John, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> I got it down pretty good, don't I? Definitely. Uh, How are you doing? I'm okay, man. Uh, real quick, um, on the personal note, and I did see that, and I just, for whatever reason, forgot to respond. How's everything with your mother-in-law? Cool? Uh, things are good. Okay, Thank good. you very much. Appreciate that. No problem, my friend. Oh, by the way, real quick, I want to let the audience know, you are from... Uh, out here in, uh, from the East Coast. You were born in the Philly, New Jersey area, correct? South Jersey? Uh, actually, technically, I was born in Colorado, but I only spent two weeks there, and then I went right out to uh, New Jersey. And my, my dad was from North Jersey, and my mother was from Philly, so I spent about half my childhood in Philly. Philly is very familiar and really kind of a dear place to me. Well, as you know, or maybe I'm not sure if you do then, uh, the Pope is in town this weekend, and we are Pope closed out. I have heard that. Yes. I have heard that. It made, it made the news. Yes, there is. It made the news. Yes, it did. They uh, have closed every possible major artery in and out of the city. So uh, until I think at least Monday morning. So t- you know, take it for what it's worth. That's the situation. But unfortunately, well, uh, they haven't dampened the airways. No, no, we are we are live, and uh, we're going to get into some stuff here because, given the recap, um, you know, I, uh, it took it in my mind. It takes a second show to really get deeper now into what happened to you after uh, the crash of ET and then the video game industry itself. You were saying during the first interview going into. The, the January, the winter of 1983, uh, at first everyone was very happy, and then coming back into the new year, you were getting comments like, well, it wasn't your fault, don't worry about it, and it, that had to be a little unnerving at least. It was unsettling. It was odd, because you have to remember, this is still pre-internet, so feedback wasn't as instantaneous as it is now. Yeah, so, that, yeah. By, by all the indicators, everything was good. 
that hadn't seen returns yet, there hadn't been a lot of reviews yet. It, there was a turnaround cycle that was really delayed. So everything was fine. And from my point of view, the whole project still felt like a success. I mean, it always did because the challenge for me was to do a, you know, a six-month job in five weeks, and I was able to accomplish that. So it really felt like a success, and it was the kind of challenge that I really needed at the time, personally. But well, as you it just... started to unfold, it became a very different story. Well, you just hit on something that I thought uh, is really kind of interesting. Pre-internet days. How do you think that would have gone today? Um, The video game comes out. It's got all the hype. Then there's the backlash. But you would have at least had an outlet to get the masses to understand. You had five weeks to put this together. And it was sanctioned by Steven Spielberg himself, if I'm correct. It was, but, you know, even if I, I mean, I don't think the utility of the Internet in this case would be to convince the public that it's better than they think it is, or that it was okay, because, you know, most movies that are really horrible, somebody approved those too, right? Yeah, but they tend to make money, though. There's several life lives involved in a movie you go to cable you go to netflix you go to eventually you end up dying on network television now but you got Uh, one shot at this you had one shot and i think i think if people had known the time crunch you were under especially the gamers themselves i mean that's what they live for i think i think you would have had a following a backing that would have said hey this has nothing to do with Warshaw himself. He did everything he could. I, I, I honestly believe you would have had a strong backing out there on the Internet. Um, I'd like to believe that. I think that would be great. It turns out that has emerged today. So it's likely there would have been some of that. But if you look at the, uh, the hater culture hmm. that uh, lives on the Internet, by and large, I think that voice would have been quashed by the overwhelming you know, the tidal wave of opportunity for hating. And uh, because that's happened anyway. So it might have happened quicker. I mean, the, the biggest difference the Internet would have made, okay, if there was an Internet back then, if there was a way to distribute the games, because now with the web, you tend to distribute software online. So what could, I mean, nowadays what would have happened is we put the game out and maybe let people know it was a beta or it was an oh, early yeah. version. Yeah, I see that. And we'd, we'd get feedback, and I'd be able to go in and tweak it and adjust it according to the feedback. And within a very short cycle, the majority of people who would get a hold of the game pro, or anybody who already had the game would be able to get an updated version that would work better. Back then, you had one shot. So that was the other thing about it. You know, you also have to remember that back then, when you released the product, it was, a, it was done. That was it. You didn't have a patch. You couldn't put a patch on it and no send it out. Well, well, then this leads to the next question for me. Now, obviously, Atari owns the rights to the ET game cartridge and probably so to Spielberg Industries. Do you think you'd ever get a shot at creating a second version? Because I got a theory on this. I think there'd be a lot of people out there who would love to have the original version, period. I don't care in what format as long as they can play it, and then you be given a second shot. And I hate to even say second shot because that's not fair either, but you be given a second shot to do it the way you would have done it if you had had the, the appropriate amount of time. Do you think that would ever be possible? Uh, I don't think it would be possible because I'm not sure I'd participate in it. Oh, come on, Howard. Big money here, brother. Big money. Big money? You think people pay big money for ET2? Yeah, I really do, because it's because the documentary itself, Atari Game Over, has become already a cult classic unto itself in some ways. Uh, I've had conversations with people over the summer since our original interview, older in our age range, who remember that time period, and then the younger generation... uh, you know, hipsters in their 20s and teens and stuff, and 
they have followed a little bit, and they have interest in it. I, I honestly think the nostalgia for that time period and that game would be very marketable, and then you flip it and you do it exactly the way you would have originally done it, the best way possible. I really believe there's a market out there for this. Well, there could be. I mean, the truth is, if I were to really take time to do a version of E.T., it would be a very different game. Part of the reason the game is the game that it is is because it was a game that was designed to be done in five weeks. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're given five weeks to do a six-month job, it's a sure recipe for failure to try and plan six months of work in five weeks because that just can't happen. Well, so my- what I did instead was design a game that I felt could be done in five weeks but tried to give it enough innovative properties and enough new features that would still give it some life and, and some interest. But, uh, you know, I'm a very ambitious designer. You just answered my next question in the statement you gave, meaning you, uh, being a programmer, being a mathematic, naturally most people in that field are perfectionists in their own ways. I was going to ask you, how did were you able to do something you knew wouldn't be perfect in your mind? And you just gave me the answer by saying you knew it was five weeks, so you were giving a five-week project. That was it. So that there was your perfection for you to keep you motivated. It's a five-week job. This is what's going to happen. Right, and that's a really good way of putting it. Now, the truth of it is, in terms of just work, time, and effort, I probably did nine or ten weeks' worth of work in those five weeks. But that's not the same as working at a regular pace and having what I call rumination time, right? Time for things to settle in your head, time for things to go over. When your nose is right deep in the middle of it, it's hard to see and feel what the whole picture is. And in most really good games, there's a big period between what we call first playable, which is the first time all the basic rules of the game are implemented, and when you're going into release, there's a huge amount of time there, and there's a lot of time where you can be working the game, playing the game, experiencing the game, and figuring what works, what doesn't work, what I like, what I don't like, and time for new ideas to pop up, things that never occurred to you in the beginning of the development. This game didn't have that. This game had to be a first playable release. Because that's really all you can do in five weeks is get pretty close to a first playable. There's no polish time. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So in some ways what I like to say is that one of the crisis points of E.T. is that it probably delivered 95 to 100 percent of its original concept. You know, and in, in most projects, most creative projects, when you look at the final project and the original concept, I mean, a lot of successful creative people will tell you, that if you deliver even 10 or 15% of your original concept, that's, like, amazing. Oh, because I, the project I, changes that much. You oh, know how it is. Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. The problem is you're dealing with the consumers, and you're dealing in particular with businessmen, or back then more businessmen than women, and they expect that big bang for the little buck. They don't understand what goes into it. They're, they tend not to be creative people outside of money. So they don't know the human element or elements that go into what you tried to do there. I mean, I mean, I played the game when I was 14, 15. I wasn't a big E.T. person. Personally, I couldn't stand the movie. But the game was what it was in 1982, 83. I, I mean, granted, Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, those are your masterpieces. Um, I guess the next question would be, did upper management start to distance themselves from you going in, you know, into the winter of 83? Could you feel that coming along? Um, not really. But, you know, you're touching on something a little earlier that really goes to the heart of why things blew up in the industry. And that's a really interesting thing to say. Because you're talking about how the business people were so out of touch with the creative process. Oh, yeah. Right, and that their all their creativity and all of their insight or whatever it is they're bringing is about the money and driving the business. And what you had was a mentality, you know, because like in the movie Atari Game Over, 
uh, which I think is still on Netflix. I think on Netflix and maybe even still on Showtime. It's, it's on. Cool. Uh, we have it out here on Comcast on demand. It can be found uh, on Showtime's documentaries. Oh, fabulous! So the thing is, they had a, there was a mentality that if we can just get the, the idea of doing a game for a movie, that was the big marketing innovation of the early '80s. Okay. Makes it doesn't sense. seem like a big idea, but for that time, for them, that was like magic. And what it meant, because before that, the big marketing thing was to do home versions of coin-op games. Yep. They're obvious things, and they're not necessarily groundbreaking things, but this was what they had to work with. So, Because they didn't understand anything about making games. Very few of them even played games. Okay, They were business people who were sitting on the goose that laid the golden egg, and they were very, very excited about that, as they should be. That's what you dream about when you're in business school is, you know, starting to get on board with a cash cow and just watching the numbers happen. You know, it's cool. But the mentality led to the idea that, you know, well, the game is just a game. It doesn't matter what the game is. If we can put the right title on it, Away we go. And E.T. was the hot, hot ticket right there. And that's why they came in retroactively to say, okay, there's the hottest movie. We were able to buy the rights to the hottest movie. We just need something to stick in the box to put it out there. And that's the idea. So you say to them, because the, the actual original process, which really kind of shows you a lot of what was going on at Atari, I think it really does speak a lot to it, is... What happened originally was Ray Kazar, the head of the company, called my boss's boss, the head of development of the VCS game, George Kish. And he said to him, hey, we need E.T. in five weeks. And George said to him, no, you can't have it. We can't do a game in five weeks. You just can't do it. So that doesn't really match the can-do attitude of someone who knows they can make a lot of money if they can make it happen, right? Yep. So, so even though they were already turned down by the head of development, Ray Kazar, for whatever reason, called me perfectly. Ray and I had a few interactions in the past. He was a very interesting guy. And I think he thought I was a very interesting guy. <laughs> but one thing was for sure, they believed in me. I mean, Atari, after Yars and after Raiders, really believed in me that I could do anything. And I'll tell you, right in that time, I believed in me that I could do anything. And there's nothing and wrong with that. You're supposed to feel that way, Howard. And here's a quick one before we got to go into a break. What I would do now today as a businessman, learning a lesson from what you went through, because of the narrow time frame of a summer blockbuster hit going into the Christmas shopping season, I would have sold tickets or vouchers for the E.T. video game, we're going to make it the best. That would be my slogan, my commercial slogan. We're going to make the best version we can. We will never shortchange you. So, by you know, this is still the hot Christmas gift. Get the ticket. Build the anticipation in yourself, and you'll have it come mid-January. Yeah, and pre-sell the market. Yeah, pre-sell. I mean, again, no one probably thought of that back then. But following that, learning in business school, that would be the way to go. If you market it right, it would you could create even more hype with the it's ticket. True, but it's hard to convince people to put a promissory note under the tree at Christmas for their kids. Oh, understandable. But after this lesson with what happened to you, I would say so. Howard, hold on. We're rolling to a break here. You are listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is master programmer from the Atari days, Howard Warshaw. We will be back in a few moments. Back to Life on Edim, your host, John Aberly. My special guest, part two, Howard Warshaw. He was the master programmer for Atari from 77 through 82. And he was the designer of Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the infamous E.T. video game. God, I hate Tony Basil. 
You know, Howard, I'm looking at the video here on the computer screen. This was actually considered good music it's back then. Well, I remember turning on the TV and getting MTV the first time. Oh, you did? Okay. The videos they broadcast. Wow. And it was, uh, it was phenomenal because this was a huge innovation in media at the time. It and changed everything. Be, it did, and I was working in what was one of the newest, you know, the first, the, one of the first time in a long time a new media had been established. Video yep. games, making TV interactive, created a new medium, and that was so exciting. But it was it was bold, brave, new world, right? It was new territory, and, uh, you know, we talked about what happened. Why did it go bad? Why did it go wrong? Because that's a big topic, and it seems to me it comes down to there's two famous quotes, okay, that really summarize a lot of what happened there. One is, I think it's uh, an old, uh, it might be from the Quran, to tell you the truth. I think it's an Islamic <laughs> saying that a success has a thousand fathers, but, but failure is an orphan. That is correct. You know, and, and that's one part of the psychology. The other one is a quote from uh, a very famous screenwriter, William Goldman. And he said once about Hollywood, he said, the fundamental law of Hollywood is that nobody knows anything. And when you put those two together, you have really the big secret of what was the problem at Atari. But the issue at Atari was there was huge, incredible, unbelievable success, right? It was the fastest rising company in the history of American business. Correct. In the early 80s. This was before dot-coms and bubbles yep. and things like that. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. This was the goal of every business that ever started, and this was the first time in a, over 100 years that it happened. And so that was exciting, and that was a lightning rod. But I'll tell you what, Nolan Bushnell sold the company early on. He's a shrewd enough businessman not to sell a company for $20 million that was going to be worth $500 million in a couple of years, right? Yep. So that means he didn't know it. Nobody knew what was going on. And you see that all over the place, the evidence of it. The people in marketing didn't know anything about games and what the gaming experience was. They just saw money coming in, and there had to be a reason. The reason was we put games out. The people who were making the games, we were just trying to figure out what you can do. You know, We were the ones who kind of knew we didn't know what we were doing, but we were trying desperately to make something happen, something cool, something interesting. That's all we knew. Nobody really knew very much about the whole picture. So the VCS was this machine that sort of hit the market, and when it did, it had its own momentum, and it was going to take off, and nobody really knew where it was going. That is, and there it was. It was happening. And so the biggest problem, I really believe if you point to one thing, uh, it's actually what we call product life cycle. Okay. Nobody understood the idea of a product life cycle then. Everybody was so focused on this one thing and just getting as many eggs as you can out of the golden goose. It was a money grab. Nobody, it was a money grab. Yeah, no, yeah. But nobody thought we need to be raising the next goose. We need to start breeding this goose. Right? So when they get great racehorses, one of the, you know, not far into their career, they start putting them out to stud because they're trying to create new hot racehorses. They want to create the next golden goose. Right? Nobody got that at Atari. They thought this was going to last forever. And as long as it was generating cash, everyone was a genius. Everyone was brilliant. Everybody was doing great. Ray Cesar was a guy who was a CEO at Burlington, a textile yep. company. Very traditional, very classic management. And he got to be the head of one of the first, uh, what you call a, a software entertainment business. Well, you know, it's different. It, you just said it yourself. The business itself, the video game industry, was radically different from where that gentleman came from. You need a totally different type of CEO leader to run a corporation like Atari back in the day. They didn't know any better. They thought they could plug in a traditionalist to be able to work closely with people like yourself, programmers, and along those lines, you guys are a different breed of people, and well, they didn't we were, realize it. Well, what it was was it's the dawning of what I call, you know, I had an economics degree before I even went into technology. 
So it was always interesting to me to be looking at what's happening in the business-wise while I was programming. And what I realized was this was the dawning of what I call the intellectual blue collar. Right? Because traditionally in business, you have a real bifurcation. You have the line workers, people at the bottom of the org chart. And they're not always considered to be like the brightest people. And the smart people get plucked out and are put in a manager. Or you hire outside people who are the managers who are supposed to be the insightful people to oversee the process mm -hmm. to help these people do a better job. And usually they know more about what's going on than the people who are working for them. The problem with programming is you need really smart people to do it well. And when you're trying to do something innovative that there was a done before, you need even smarter people. And what happens is you wind up with people, the programmers were the bottom of the org chart. Nobody works for a programmer, right? I mean, <laughs> the programmer is the, is the line worker. But the kind of work they're doing, it's more like a craftsman than just uh, a, a line worker. So, but the management style, see, Nolan Bush now did have a lot of really innovative concepts about management and business because he was an engineer. He really wasn't a businessman. And this is a thing that happens in companies. I call it Warshaw's Law of Marketing Inversion, which is that any company starts off with know-how and technology because you have to create a product. But what happens is as the company grows, if it succeeds, it starts to go beyond what people who are focused on creating products really can handle, and it makes sense for marketing and sales and management to start to take over a company because they're better adapted to uh, run a company and have it watch the growth oversee the trajectory of the company over time. But that's when you have a standard product that just rolls and you've got the process down for making the product, you just need to move the product. The problem with this is this is an ever-evolving and a super creative product and you have to start, you know, how do you plan creativity? How do you, you know, make sure we're going to keep being super creative as time goes on? That's the problem people are always trying to solve in Silicon Valley, and that was a new problem to solve in American business. The people who were traditional managers, that wasn't even on their radar. Wasn't a thought. And you can tell that with Ray Kazar in an interview once. He was talking about the just before Activision formed. Yeah. One of the main reasons Activision formed was because they went to Kazar and said, look, we're doing stuff, not many people. At this time, there's only like 30 or 40 people in the world who can actually make a video game on the VCS. That's all there is. There aren't wow. many people who know how to do this, and it's not an easy thing to do. So Ray Kazar, they said, you know, we want more a piece of the action. He could have spent very little money and saved himself a lot. But he said, he actually said, and this is a quote, you guys are like, you know, they used to make towels and cloth and products and textiles and things like that. And Ray said, look, you guys are just a bunch of towel designers. Oh. You're a dime a dozen. I could replace it. And so they said, okay, go ahead. And they left and they formed Activision, which became one of the biggest problems that Ray Kazar ever had. Yep. I don't know if he ever realized he was instrumental in their formation. Because, again, nobody understood what was happening. Right? Nobody really got the scope of what was going on. So all these, it's, it's, you know, when people bring their uh, traditional knowledge and assume it applies in a new situation, both comedy and tragedy ensue. Well, you hit it right on the mark, though, Howard. You could look at the programmer in one of two ways. You could look at the programmer as the line worker, uh, going through a manufacturing plant or as someone in a steel manufacturing plant uh, and think, and they're the ones that are actually making it happen. Uh, that's why when they do go on strike and shut things down, negotiations happen. Uh, I think they came into that management team, as you alluded a few moments ago, they more or less came in and tried to imply or apply the old rules as you would to the line worker to a programmer, but you guys were different. You were educated. You were younger. You're a little cockier. I mean, you know, yeah. it was a whole different animal. You're dealing with a line worker. They, they're probably uneducated as far as college goes. They have families to take care of. In a lot of ways, they're just thankful for the job, and management right. knows that. You guys, were, you guys were the first wave of that different breed of super educated, young, and cocky. Right, it's what I call the intellectual blue collar. So what you have is for the first time you have line workers essentially 
who are smarter about the whole process of what's going on than their bosses. Exactly. And so there's two kinds of bosses, right? There's the boss who is really grateful for the opportunity to learn from their employees, to get what they know, to understand it, and, and is, is, is welcome to the idea of my people who work for me support me and help me working and doing the job I do to try and help them. And then there's the other kind of boss, which is more about ego, who's saying, no, it's my job to be better than them, and any evidence that anything isn't, that's not the way it is, is unacceptable and cannot be okay. So they got bruised, they got upset, and the management at Atari, when they would hear stuff coming back from us at times, They'd be like, you know, that's very cute that you say that, but, you know, we're the big boys and you guys keep playing in the sandbox. But they were kind of running it into the ground. Now, we didn't know for sure they were running into the ground, but we knew they were creating an environment that was the opposite of the environment that had spawned the success. We knew what it was that was working in terms of popping games out. And the thing that they brought up that was a really important thing for them, and I don't mean these guys are dummies either. No. You know, these were all graduates of top, top universities, very smart people. They weren't dummies, but they were blinded by their ambition. And they wanted to apply the formula they knew instead of trying to understand a new situation that was unfolding. And that, I think, was a problem. Well, so you hit what I try to do in the business dealings that I put together. Um, I deal like environmental work, government contracts, things along those lines. I have a theory or a map that I try to use. I call it the, you know, everyone has a seat at the table, so to speak, map. I want someone that can do their job. And that's all I need you to do is your job. And I will piece everything around all of that. So everyone has a seat at the table. Bring your best meal with you. Bring your fork and knife, and we're going to do this. I, I, I don't need my environmental specialist working on sales and marketing or vice versa. They should know a little bit about what the other person is doing, but I don't need crossover. I just need them to understand each other and support each other. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I think that's a great theory. I really like that. And the only thing I would add, I mean, what it suggests to me that's really important is that, you know, it's, well, two things. One is that's a brilliant plan for generating buy-in, which is so important if you want to get something done is to have everyone really feel they're a part of it. Exactly. But the other thing that's absolutely essential and that we didn't have at Atari is everybody has their job to do, but they need to respect the people in the other seat to feel that I'm doing my job well and I know they're doing their job well and away we go. And respect was in kind of short supply at Atari because there was so much miscommunication. Everyone was running in such different directions that you could really kind of feel that the management thought we were these goofy, oddball characters who we just, you know, whatever you say, that's fine. Just keep the game popping out. That's all they wanted, but they tried to constrain it. And we felt they were just a bunch of dodo suits who just ran around and didn't have any idea what was going on. And each of us, from our limited perspective, could say we're right. But the truth of it is, everybody on the boat was still fighting each other instead of getting and working together and really communicating about it. But there's uh, in marriage counseling, there's a phrase I like to use with people a lot, because I think it's very descriptive. I think it applies to this situation, too. Because I also work with uh, co-founders in startups and things like that, because that relationship a lot of times is very much like a marriage. And what I tell people to help give them perspective is there, there's an old saying that is that blaming each other in a marriage is like saying your side of the boat is sinking. Huh. <laughs> you know? And people, it, it helps people really get the idea that, you know, well, blaming is nice, but the fact is we're in this together, and if any of us is failing, we're all failing. Well, that's to try to get that past the egos. And I just thought of something here, too. Really, what you were describing a little bit earlier, the, the attitudes of, you know, being at, at Atari at the time was almost a microcosm of the baby boom generation breaking out 
and the generational gap between its so-called greatest generation parents and doing things your way. Uh, I've often referred to the baby baby boom generation as the locust generation. They have and will consume everything until the last one dies. It's a very much a consumption group of people, very cutthroat in a lot of ways. Now, of course, each individual will tell you, no, that's not the case. But go over the last 50 years, and as a whole, you see it. And I think that's what was happening at Atari in a much smaller version, just that generational gap. Would you agree there? Absolutely. I think that's a great take on it. Oh, I really thank do. you. Oh, no, it's right on, because that's such a great framing for it, because it was. You had the classic, uh, long-standing, I know how to do it, so we'll do it my way, that's it. And another way to look at the locust generation, I think that's a nice (laughs) moniker for it. But it was also, I mean, people called it the me generation, the this generation, but it was also, it was the revolutionary generation. It's the, because it's been a long-standing idea, I'm going to reject it, and I'm going to do it different. And, and there you have the essential conflict. You have people who just want to do it different versus people who are all about doing it the way we've always done it. And that is a difficult conflict. But well, the you thing have is, Go ahead. I'm sorry. But the thing is, when you're venturing out into the woods, into new frontier and possibly dangerous territory, but there's treasure out there, do you want to go out there with conservative, tried-and-true people who are look good in their suits and don't want to get dirty, or do you want to get out there with explorers and adventurers? <laughs> and there was that conflict, because that's what it was. But had. that conflict, in, and in defense of the parents of the baby boomers, the greatest generation, as they have been dubbed by uh, Tom Brokoff, it was a different mindset, and, and if you think logically about this, This is the World War II generation that came of age very quickly and without rules and regulations and specific leadership roles and conformity. One does not survive in war very long. And I think they brought those those mentalities back with them as a whole, as a group, as a generation, then they got educated for the first time. The masses had college available to them through the GI Bill, and they brought that military mentality into the workforce. This is your job. That's your job. There's conformity here. You're going to answer to me on this. They brought those dynamics right into the workforce. Then they started to have kids, and then those kids with television, exposure to many things, didn't like what they saw. And the baby boom generation kind of rioted against it. But in the end, though, wouldn't you say that your generation, Howard, kind of almost came full circle and in a lot of ways embraced that conformity at a certain point? Because once you had yuppies in the 80s with money and the stock market and developing things, there was a change there, kind of like, okay, we've been playing for a while, and now we have to start adopting some of our parents' philosophies. Do you see that at all? Well, there is. And I think, you know, and now having my experience that I do, it's a very interesting picture. There's, there's a quote, I love quotes, as you might guess by now. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a quote I had that's like, you know, what is the matter with this upcoming generation? They have no respect for our values. The, the women are loose and they run all over the place and they do whatever they want. And the kids are just all about getting what they what they feel like. And there's no respect of elders and what's going on. I really fear this is the end of our society. That quote was spoken by someone in ancient Greece 2,500 years ago. Okay? So there's an updated version of that quote, which is... Uh, if you're if you're in your twenties and you're not a liberal, you have no heart. But if you're in your forties and you're not a conservative, you have no brain. That's a good one. Hold on the moment with that one, Howard. Hold on, I gotta roll into one more break here. You are listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today my guest is former master programmer for Atari, Howard Warshaw, who is now a therapist in the Silicon Valley area, and we are learning 
many things this afternoon. We'll be right back. Back to Lifeline Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is former master programmer at Atari, Howard Scott Warshaw. Howard, help me now. Should it be Howard Scott when I talk to you on the phone here? How do you want me to do this? No, either Howard or Howard Scott. When I use my full name, it's my full name. It's like gotcha. my branding. So, okay, uh, okay. Now I get it. That's okay. I, you know, it has, it has risen to the level of affectation with me. That is excellent. We'll talk more about that off the air. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking over. My phone goes, buzzes, and I'm going, oh, okay. I didn't know that one. I'll have to, have to talk to him about that one later. Yeah, not a problem. With, with pleasure. I'll make sure we keep your branding intact there. That's great. Um, well, now, you know, after all these years, and this was the reason I brought you back, and I'll probably need a part three now because – I think basically we just gave my listeners a lesson in business uh, 101, if not 101.5, on what to do and what not to do in tech-type companies. With yourself now, you kind of bounced around for a while after the Atari thing. You did a lot of different types of jobs. I mean, you're a very, very educated man, so you probably pretty much do anything you want. But you went in to become a therapist, and... In a way, from the outside looking in, that might seem like an unusual occupation for someone with your technical background and education. How do you answer to that? It does look like that. I mean, a lot of people say, wow, you went from programmer to therapist. Most people see programmers as the antithesis of therapists, and the truth is some programmers are the antithesis of therapists. But... Uh, the thing is, I see it as a very natural transition, and I'll explain why. It's because if you think about it at the root of it, programmers and therapists, they're both systems analysts. So the way I look at it is I just graduated to a much more sophisticated machine. Interesting. Now, you're in the Silicon Valley area, so I assume yes, I, I assume that brings in from the outside looking in again, I think the average person, especially out here on the East Coast, you know, we hear the Silicon Valley, we know what goes on there, but we really don't know anything about it. Or, you know, the kind of people that live there, are they, you know, different, you know, from my neighbor next door to me? Are, are there 50,000 of the same type of IT person I see in my office when I walk through well, the door? What, what's yeah, it Silicon like? Silicon Valley is a very, very interesting place. It's a unique place in the world. There are places that uh, have aspects of it, but it's the only place that's pure in this dimension. And here's the thing. Like, I'm the Silicon Valley therapist. That's how I brand myself. And because I'm someone who has been in the tech side, in the management side, in the creative side of Silicon Valley production for decades. And, but I'm also someone who's very person-centric, and I'm fascinated with human behavior, and I'm also fascinated with business and business history and how that functions. There's so many things that interest me. So here's the, my take on Silicon Valley. If you come to Silicon Valley, you look around and what you see is incredible diversity. Because you see people from every part of the planet here. And you just look around, you can see it. People all different shapes, sizes, colors, ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. It's all here. It's all there. So you come here and at first blush, it looks like one of the most diverse places on Earth. But the truth is, it's actually one of the least diverse places on earth because almost every single one of these people regardless of what they look like they are super intelligent hyper motivated extremely ambitious type a people you see more of that here than anywhere else there was a thing see the silicon valley what i the way i refer to that is like it's the intellectual gold rush there was a time where everybody realized, oh, my God, all the action, all the money, all the adventure, all the excitement of technology is in Silicon Valley. And the best and the brightest from all over the world came here to seek their fortune. Hmm. 
just like Sutter's Mill in California. This is the second gold rush, only this one is intellectual gold. Okay, so here's where I can go. So people, you have people from all over the world who their whole life, they were absolutely the best and the brightest. They were the top of the heap all the way along through their life. They were the guru. They were the number one person in whatever it is they were doing. And those people come from all over the world. They come here to Silicon Valley to be average. Okay? Because That's, you're right. You're, right. you're with your like peers. That. You're right. And so that's a, but think about that. That's a weird thing. That's a very weird experience. I mean, in some ways, it's a relief. It's really nice to suddenly find yourself surrounded by people who can match your capacity and capability. That's a special thing to experience for exceptional people. But at the same time, it's a, also a big come down to have always been the top of the heap and then suddenly be average. And a lot of people don't adjust to that well. Okay, so that's what, you know, people say, you know, well, who do you work with as a therapist? I say, well, I, I work with, I work with all kinds of people, and I work with adults and couples, and I work with people who are in and out of tech trying to resolve their communication. But quite chiefly, I work with, I work with what I call high-tech leaders and the super intelligent. That's the short line of it. It's like, I like working with people who are really, really smart. And because the thing about being really smart is uh, it's hard for other people to fool you, but you're really good at fooling yourself at times. Oh, you can convince yourself of anything. If you are really intelligent and you have a track record of being able to prove that and being successful, unfortunately, you are correct. You can convince yourself that any idea you have is going to be the idea. Well, absolutely, including ideas about yourself. And it's just, so it's a very interesting place psychologically to be. And to find therapists who can work with that is tricky also because there is a very big difference in cultures between therapists and uh, engineers, right? Yeah. A lot of engineers see therapists as, you know, these flaky, weirdo space cadets who are just way out there in Google land and have nothing to do with reality and they're totally ungrounded. And a lot of therapists see engineers entirely as all autistic on the spectrum somewhere, and they're all just incapable of dealing with people or feelings and stuff. They're just numbers people, and they're stuck. And so, therefore, those two communities don't really connect very well. And that's a shame, okay, because there's a lot of therapists who could use more income. <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of engineers who could really use some therapists, okay? But right now, there's that chasm. And one of my goals, one of my crusades, is to bridge that gap because I'm the person who has their foot in each camp. Yes, you do. I've been an engineer. I've managed engineers. I understand engineers. And chief above everything is I understand that the minority of engineers are on the spectrum, not the majority, that there's a lot of engineers that are not there at all. But therapists who don't get that are going to have a lot of trouble working with them and create some very unsuccessful therapeutic examples. And then, you know, Negative feedback travels 10 times faster than positive feedback, right? Well, it's interesting what you hit on, though. Uh, For myself, working in sales and marketing all these years and doing consulting work and so forth, a sales and marketing person is almost a therapist in a way because you're listening to the customer. You have to have empathy, understanding, be able to put yourself into that person's mindset. That way you can work with them and hopefully get the sale and then go on to create what needs to be created. I have exactly. worked exactly. And I have worked around physical engineers, environmental engineers, my entire career. They are a different breed of people. I've experienced this, where I've been out in the field, and I've called back to the head engineer, and I said, "Hey, you know, they designed something, or we modified something, and I'm out there, and it, it's not happening." And they get very quiet, and then they get upset, and they go, "Well, it should be." That's the way I designed it. And I'm like, dude, I'm in the field here. It's not happening. You know, and then you start to tell them, you know, hey, you know, it's amazing. Then they blame you for it. They blame you for it. And then oh, we, yeah, you blame the customer, you blame uh, the program, you blame all kinds of stuff because it sure can't be my fault. Oh, well, the best is when you bring it back to them or they come out into the field. Getting them out of the office is almost impossible. But if you bring them out into the field and – 
you prove to them that you are correct and that this is a glitch on their end. Um, they never acknowledge it. They look at you, nod their head, and then that's the end of it. Right, and there are plenty of engineers like that because that's ego that you're seeing. You know, because people, the kind of work that engineers do is very much a representation of who they are, although you don't necessarily want to admit it, you're not supposed to take it that way. But oh, no, they are. That's who they are. I agree 100% with you. I don't but think... There's, also, there's a wide diversity of engineers. There's all kinds. So I'll tell you, one of the reasons that I realized I needed to be a therapist is because even throughout my engineering, I did it differently than a lot of engineers do, and that was always kind of interesting, but I do everything differently than other people tend to do it. And it's, I realized after a while as a manager, as a director, as a, whatever endeavor I chose to get involved in, I tended to approach it like a therapist. I was more interested in the people and what they were doing and how they were approaching it than I was in what the thing is that we were doing. And I realized as a manager, for a while, I was managing programmers, and the way I was succeeding with that was I was actually working on their personal issues and removing obstructions to their work rather than facilitating them technically and helping them work through problems. No, because you... most engineers don't need that kind of help. No. They love that. No, they but love they're... it. Howard, Howard Scott, I have to cut you off, unfortunately. You know, brother, there's got to be a part three to this sometime going into the holidays, right? John, anytime you want me back on the show, I'm there. I, I love these conversations. Oh, we're going really to pri- have our private ones. But look for me to set something up again, probably going the holidays. Thank you, my friend, for coming on. You have been listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my special guest, former master programmer at Atari, Howard Scott Warshaw, who is now a therapist in the Silicon Valley. You can go look him up on his website. He's a fascinating man. I will be back again next week. Thanks. You win.